Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we're going to be continuing in our discussion of going through the book of Romans. We have started to read through it, and this is kind of in the middle of a series on Calvinism, uh, because in order to understand Romans 9 through 11, you need to understand Romans 1 through 8 leading up to it. And so I will at times be emphasizing certain things in regards to Calvinism, but I really don't think today we're going to be talking too much about Calvinism, because Romans 2 is kind of continuing off of what Paul talked about in Romans 1, and I really don't think anything really, you touch on anything with um, Calvinism today, except for maybe some of the ways in which they, you know, try to twist things around about those who are not Calvinists, but so... Because the focus today in Romans chapter 2, and I don't know how much Romans chapter 2 will get through, maybe able to get through all of it, we'll see. There is a continuation of what Paul says. So when you look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1, you see where he says, therefore, right? And so that that is going back to what he says in Romans chapter 1, at the end of Romans chapter 1, where he says, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them, right? And so he says, therefore, and remember what we said last time, whenever you see the word therefore, it's a summary statement. He's making a conclusion based upon something that is previously said. So given that statement, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you judge, for you who judge, practice the same things, which is exactly what he just says. Who, knowing the judgment of God, you know, not only do the same things, but take hearty approval in those who do the same things, right? And so he's talking, to, he pivots here to a different group of people, right? Whereas in the tail end of chapter 1, it's kind of talking about, you know, you can make a broad sweeping generalization about mankind in general. Now, in particular, though, when you think about the Jews, right, they did not do those things in the sense, at least as a culture, right? Their ideas of that, you know, ultimately coming from how God had specifically revealed himself to them, they had different ideas and views. And even some of the more educated Gentiles, right? They, like the Stoics and stuff, for instance, um, there was a kind of morality among some of the Gentiles, right? that they saw that those things were not the uh, the the type of you know wicked and immoral living that even according to their own conscience and reasoning they saw were foolish right and so paul kind of switches and pivots from just open heathenism right uh, that he's describing in humanity in the last part of chapter 1 and he switches to more of people who would tend to agree with him Right now, primarily, he's beginning to switch over to discuss the Jews. Right down in verse seventeen, he specifically addresses the Jews. But there does you can make some application and include a moral Gentile in the first in this first part because the same things would appeal to them. And you'll see he he actually includes them as knowing that the judgment of God falls rightly upon those who do such things that he just describes in the tail end of Romans one. Right where he lists all these types of things, this sort of living, right? And so whenever he says in Romans 2, verse 1, remember, the chapter breaks are not original, okay? And they were just added for convenience and kind of being able to sort through the scriptures, right? 
He says, therefore, you have no excuse. And in him saying that, he's kind of hearkening back to Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where he said, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That is, humanity in general is without excuse to not acknowledge God. And now he's kind of hearkening back to this other group and saying, hey, don't don't just condemn them and don't look down on these people who live this way, because you're without excuse too. He says, every one of you who passes judgment. So it's like those of you who think, oh, I'm not like them. And he's like, no, you are condemned too for passing judgment on them, because in, this, in the way in which you judge them, you're condemning yourself because you do the same things. And, and the Greek is emphasizing the same sort of things, not saying the exact same practices, right, of like fornication and things like that. It's emphasizing, hey, you are living in sin too, right? And I want you to think about that, because it kind of goes into this leading into where the idea of conscience condemns people. In order for you to condemn somebody else, you are assuming a standard of right and wrong, right? Now, this is where relativists really don't understand anything. They say, well, that's wrong. Well, it's wrong to say that there's absolutely anything wrong. Well, it's like, well, in you even saying that, you're assuming that there are things that are right and wrong, right? So in order for you to pass judgment on something or someone, you are assuming a standard by which you believe they are accountable. And what Paul is saying is, hey, that standard that you were using to judge them and condemn them, you yourself don't measure up to it. Now, this should sound familiar because this is exactly what um, the kind of hypocrisy, hypocritical judging that Christ actually did condemn, right? Um, In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through uh, 5, right? And this, you know, everybody quotes verse 1 and say, well, do not judge that you will not be judged. And it's like, well, you know, twist not Scripture lest you be like Satan, because that's not what the passage means. You have to read it in context. He says, do not judge that you will not be judged. Again, we're reading Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what does he condemn here? Judging? No, hypocritical judging. And the principle being, with the measure that you use to measure other people, it will be measured to you. And you can see where this really aligns itself with what we're told about esteeming others to be better than yourselves, being humble, you know, to not be arrogant and condescending to other people. I mean, and even in um, even in giving and charitable giving, um, the same kind of idea is used. The same uh, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return, Luke 6.38, right? And so there is this principle of The measuring rod that you apply to others, you better make sure that you're using it on yourself also. And so this type of the Jews, right, who, and as he's going to pivot to that around verse 17 in chapter 2, and also these moral, self-proclaimed moral Gentiles, right, think of philosophers and things like that, people who had some standard that was kind of in agreement with conscience, but it had nothing to do with God, right? 
Um, Stoics are something that people will really uh, lay out from the first century, even Tertullian in the early third century, references how Seneca and some of these other guys were very much kind of in agreement with the practical living aspects of the Christian life, things not to do with things to do, right? Minus God, of course. And so he's kind of starting to show how just because you're moral, just because you have a right standard by which you can say that others are wrong does not mean that you yourself are right, okay? And so he pivots in verse 2, and he says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, right? Now, in this statement, some people actually think that this is the this is actually a statement that he is anticipating from a an interlocutor a and what is called in rhetoric a a diatribe right on his part where he is anticipating counter arguments or some an imagined person who is kind of speaking with him about what he is saying now i don't know if that's true but it does fit but it also fits that if it's just paul including them and acknowledging that they this group of people he's now addressing, right? Because remember, he is writing to a church congregation, a group of churches, right? And they would, of course, not fall under the standard of what is in the tail end of Romans 1, right? He says that, and we know, and whether this is coming from some imagined person arguing against him, and I, I'm bringing that up now because that is something that Paul does throughout the book of Romans, okay? And that's going to be really prominent when you come to Romans 9 and how you frame it, okay? Um, but Paul, and especially uh, you get to Romans chapter 3 especially, and it's brought up. There are He's anticipating certain counter-arguments from people, okay? And in this thing, you see where it says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And it does seem like he's anticipating somebody. So this is somebody who agrees with him that, yeah, those people who do those things from that are listed in Romans, tail end of Romans chapter 1, which we read at the tail end of that, he's like, and these are people who like agree, like, yeah, of course people who live that way are, have the wrath of God upon them, right? And this is what he says in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 3, he says, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And he begins to emphasize something that is very important to understand regarding how the Jews viewed things, okay? Um, verse 4, says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of, uh, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. I'm going to read through the rest of this and then you know, emphasize a point, okay? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Actually, I'm going to go down to verse 11 and then comment about this, okay? Um, yeah, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For there is no partiality with God. There is no respecter of persons with God. Now, this point that Paul is emphasizing, you have to understand the context, okay? 
he's not just anticipating moral people um, only, right? People who have a sense of agreement with God's standards, right? There is this idea within Judaism at the time, the Jewish religion at the time, and leading up to this time, for about four centuries, that it was, it's like God treats Israel as special just because they're descended from Abraham. And we know this from the writings of the rabbis and the religious leaders throughout the Second Temple period, which, you know, which is where the first century would fall. You know, the time during when the Second Temple was rebuilt, when they came back to Israel from the Babylonian dispersion, you know, when days of Daniel and then were carried away to Babylon, and then Ezra and Nehemiah and them came back, and they rebuilt the temple, which had been destroyed, and then later Herod the Great um, undertook to rebuild and really dress up the temple to where it was really lavish, be gold everywhere and all sorts of stuff, right? And that was being done in the days of Christ's earthly ministry. And a couple years after his uh, death and resurrection and ascension, it was finished. And then there was a couple decades until 70 AD when the temple was finished, and it was just lavish, beautiful temple, just really just amazing architectural achievement. And the Jews had this concept that Israel was the elect nation of God, which is true, but that they were chosen by God almost arbitrarily. It was that God chose them as special people. They were partakers of the covenant of God simply because they were Jews. But what Paul begins to lay out here, and he's going to develop this kind of throughout and finish it especially down after verse 17 down to the end of the chapter, that, hey, no, 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 just because you're Jews doesn't mean anything. But he says, God will render to each person according to his deeds, right? And so just because you're a Jew, if you do not live in accordance with God's ways, it doesn't mean anything. And if a Gentile who is not a Jew lives in accordance with God's ways, will God then not accept him? And this is what Paul's reasoning is here. And he's, this would have been horribly jarring to a Jew. Okay, just in the same way in which when John the Baptist and Christ and them started calling the Jews to be born again, that would have been horribly offensive. Because it's like, no, we, we're Jews. We don't need to be changed in that sense, right? And so Paul's pretty much just laying out, hey, do you think that just because you agree with God, that you're right with God? No, 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 no. If you agree with God, that doesn't mean anything. If you practice the things that God has given you to practice, then hey, that's something. But if you just do the exact same kinds of things, right, disobedience to God, doesn't matter if you agree with God, you're still judged. Why? Because God is not a respecter of persons. God's righteous judgment or his acceptance is not based upon your race or what people you come from, Gentile or Jew. And this is where he's going to kind of spend some time um, discussing. Right? And whenever he says, verse 7 through, uh, verse 7 and 8, right, where he says, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, right? There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, right? He's like, hey, you do evil, doesn't matter if you're a Jew 
or a Greek or a, a Gentile, right? You're going to be punished by God, uh, verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he's like, hey, hey, and if the Jew walks in accordance with God's ways, you know, well, glory and honor and peace from God to you. But if a Gentile lives in accordance with God's ways, glory and honor and peace to you. Hey, good, right? And that is the context of what he says, for there is no partiality with God. There's no respecter of persons, okay? Jew or Gentile, God's going to accept you on the basis of whether or not you're walking in his ways. And I will say, though, in that passage, some people really get bent out of shape about that, and they almost think that Paul is laying out a kind of too much of an emphasis on works. Well, no, he's just describing something. He's not trying to teach how to be saved. He's describing the general conduct of somebody who is right with God, right? Because you think about this, and... I've used this illustration before, but again, not everybody listens to every single thing, especially not in any kind of order. So you have to think about it like this. It's like in 1 John, whenever it says, how do we know that we know him? When we love God and keep his commandments, right? How do we know that we're in him? We should walk as he walked, right? And in 1 John chapter 3, where it talks about, in this the children of God are manifest, right? Or evident. It's because they practice righteousness. They walk in God's ways. And the word practice, it is a good reflection of that because it's talking about the consistent behavior. In that sense, it's not being an instruction about how to be saved, if you want to use those words, or to be right with God. It's not, well, how do you become a Christian? Well, follow God in the sense of go start obeying his commandments. I'm sorry. No. How do you become a Christian is you repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ, trust in what Christ alone has done, and because of that, follow him, right? And so, but how would you describe, like, uh, well, how does a Christian live? Well, they, they love God, they keep his commandments, you know, they read his word, but if you were to take that into a different context, right, and instead of understanding that answer in, as an answer to the question of, well, what does a Christian live like? And you started to try and say that for how do you become a Christian, right? And so imagine if somebody said, well, how do you become a Christian? And they said, well, love God, keep his commandments, read his word. I'm sorry, you've missed the whole point. A description of a Christian's life, depending on obviously how you describe that, is not telling you how to become one, okay? So just because he's saying, hey, to everyone who by patient continuance and well-doing seeks for glory and honor and immortality, he's not saying do good works and you will be saved. That's not, he's describing the conduct, right? And because that's what's in view, uh, where he's contrasting, he's like, hey, just because you agree with these things about how a person should live, that does not mean that you're saved. It does not mean that you are considered righteous in the sight of God, Right? But it is an accurate description of those who are right with God. They do patiently seek for glory and honor and immortality by patient continuance and well-doing. That's an accurate description of how they live. You know? And so it's just one of those things where don't allow descriptions of how a Christian lives or a righteous person lives to confuse you. Pay attention to the context. Is it meaning to instruct you about how to become one, because that's the thing you have to remember. There is not a book in the New Testament that is written written to a lost person. 
the assumption is that if you're reading it, you are a Christian, because that's who they were written to, okay? Except with the exception of, the ob- of uh, some books like the Gospels, of the Gospel of John, especially where it says in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written that you may, um, that you may believe that he is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name, right? And so there are certain places where you can see where the intent is to instruct a lost person in the sense of telling them the life of Christ or telling them the gospel. But the letters of the apostles especially are not written to lost people. And so a lost person would not be able to be included in that statement or that description, okay? This passage is being used to describe reasons behind certain things doctrinally to Christians, okay? And I just have to say that because some people do get um, confused when they read through those passages, as though Paul is laying out saved by works, and that's false. That's a mis... That's a, that's a straw man argument from some people who just want to defend how they can live in sin and they still call themselves Christians, which is also false. Okay, So that is the context of what he says in verse 11, of how there is no partiality of, with God. There is no respecter of persons. And you can even apply that to this false idea of eternal security or once in grace, always in grace, where you can live like the devil and still go to heaven. I'm sorry, that's false. Do you? Th- I mean, this is what Paul is exactly talking about. You think because you take the name of Christ upon yourself, that your life cannot reflect the name of Christ, and you are still going to be treated as though you are right with God? I'm sorry, you were deceived. And Paul goes against that very hard in other places. Uh, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And so Paul begins to bring in the law. He's, in, he's bringing the idea of the law is the revealed um, righteous standards of God. If there was a list of commandments that you could keep and go to heaven, it would be the law of Moses. That's literally what it would be. Um, but later on, he's going to go in to show you why that's literally not the purpose. God knows you can't keep the law of Moses. It was never the purpose to be saved. Uh, no, not a single person has ever been saved by keeping the law of Moses. And so he says that the Gentiles, who they sin without the law, right? They're outside of the law of Moses. They were never given the law of Moses, right? It says that they're, they perish without the law. They have no, no knowledge of it. They live their lives without it, and they die without it. And those who they sin under the law will be judged by the law, Right? So the Gentiles will not be held accountable for the law of Moses in that sense. They have something else that condemns them, right? Now, don't get me wrong. I know the passage where it says, you know, so that all the world may become condemned and, you know, be judged by, by God, right? I know that passage. Okay, we will get to that when we get there. Yes, the law is a standard that can be used to judge Gentiles in that sense, okay? Because if somebody wants to say, hey, I'm going to come to God, you can't make up your own standard. Paul's just talking in general terms for illustrating a point right here, okay? He goes on to say, verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified, right? So, again, the thing with the Jews, they had the law, they weren't keeping it. They knew about it, and they weren't keeping it. So just the fact that they knew about it, or culturally gave an intellectual assent to it, did not save them. It did not mean they were right before God, is what Paul is trying to get at. Verse 14, um, and, and I guess we'll read down to verse 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, 
do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. A good illustration of this point is how we as human beings, right, uh, Gentiles in, in particular, because most likely you're a Gentile listeners. If you're not, you're a Jew, and don't worry, it still applies to you. One of the key signs of the perverseness of our hearts, our fallen nature apart from Christ, is we will judge people for doing things that we ourselves have done. And by our knowledge of judging someone else for doing it shows that we are condemning ourselves. For example, we see a person lie to someone else, and we're like, oh, that was wrong. You, you know, he should not have done that. But nevertheless, at some point in our life, we have lied to somebody else, and we've justified it to ourselves, even though by the same standards, lying or not lying, we have condemned other people. And this is kind of what he's referring to. At times, your conscience and your thoughts, you will use your thoughts to accuse yourself or else defend yourself against your conscience. And so this just shows the work of the law written in your heart, God's fingerprint on you. You have a standard of morality, a very general standard of morality that you are aware of, even if you are not aware of the law of Moses or any other kind of special revelation uh, that is a more particular than the general revelation that from creation and conscience, right? There is a type of special revelation that is very particular, and that's like Scripture, the commandments of God, you know? And then there's general revelation, such as creation and conscience, okay? Which, although are in agreement and in line to lead you to God, by themselves do not save you, Right? but they can give you a certain knowledge of God, right? And so this is kind of what he's pointing out, is like, your conscience bears witness that you are condemned because you, by the same standards that you will accuse others, you will excuse yourself, right? Showing that while God's not a respecter of persons and God's not partial, human beings, we absolutely are. In verse 17, and see, this is where he pivots to explicitly apply this to the Jews in general, okay? But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and he gives kind of a list of things down to verse end of verse 21, he says, um, and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide of the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And so he starts pointing out, and he's like, hey, if you call yourself a Jew, you know the law. You esteem these things to be true, these, these right precepts that are a gen genuine revelation from God. They are genuine, spiritual, and righteous things that are meant to reveal God to people. 
And he's like, hey, just knowing these things doesn't matter because if you consider yourself a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of those who are foolish, a teacher of the immature, talking about how they viewed Gentiles, whether you know cultured or not, or educated or not, they viewed them as less than themselves, right? Because they have the right revelation of God, right? And he's like, hey, that doesn't matter if you are not yourself keeping it, right? It's like, if you teach people, do you not teach yourself? You preach that somebody doesn't steal, do you steal? And their conscience, for the most part, would bear witness that they had at some point. You say that someone should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? I mean, especially when you include how the whole point of it, as Christ explained, was the heart commitment, right? You know, it says, if you look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery already. So it wasn't just this external stuff, it was the actual heart. It was a spiritual matter from the inner man. He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I mean, you could um, you could make the application and stuff where Christ specifically talked about it. What about things consecrated to God, right? And how the Pharisees and them would explain away things that were supposed to be consecrated to God, but they would say, no, it is Corban, and they would say, you don't have to right? Or withholding something that was supposed to belong to God, like the Jews were supposed to tithe, and they were supposed to do other things and give even above that. But all the way back in Malachi, the Jews were withholding those things, and God said that they were robbing him, right? Now, that's for the Jews. In New Testament, we don't tithe. We don't have to. And so he points out hypocrisy, right? Because if you boast in the law, and yet you break the law in any part, guess what? He says, you're dishonoring God. And this is where the Jews actually had created a bad name for God amongst the Gentiles. When you really go back and you read through what some of the, the Romans and the pagans actually said about them, the Jews were so arrogant, and, and I'm sure not all of them, of course, broad sweeping generalization. For the most part, the Jews were very self-righteous, like they would not help um, Gentiles. They would not speak to Gentiles. They considered them dogs and less than themselves, even though these Gentiles were created by God too. And so this is where, you know, Paul Romans is like, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is by their disobedience, their failure to live in agreement with the things that God has said, never the, regardless of what they said and esteemed, right? Verse 25, for indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So remember, transgressor of the law is somebody is violating a commandment. Okay, that is what transgression is. It is a violation of law, a revealed commandment from God. And circumcision was supposed to be a sign, an external sign of the fact that you did belong to God and were walking in the righteousness of the, the Mosaic law, okay? And it's like, so this is where he says, yeah, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. And it's like, but if you break the law, right, if you violate the law, it doesn't matter because your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And it's like, because if you're not keeping the law, what does a sign matter? What does a seal matter if the whole point of what it signifies has been violated. Verse 26, so if the uncircumcised man, that is a non-Jew, keeps the requirements of the law, which is walking in God's ways, right, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? And so it's like this idea of just because you are physically circumcised does not mean that you are keeping the point. And the the idea of the letter of the law is it's something one that gets thrown around a lot with I think a lot of people play fast and loose with it. There's been a lot of preaching about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, and people really fail to really understand what it means. The letter of the law is like, hey, it's literally you're clinging to these words, but you're not keeping them. Right? You don't get the point of them, right? Just you esteeming the letters and the words of the law does not mean anything if you do not keep them, right? And you can even go back to, let's see, I don't know if it was, it was in Ezekiel, I believe, where he talked about there is coming a circumcision of the heart, right? Where, it might have been Jeremiah or Ezekiel, both of them mentioned the new covenant, where the new covenant that is in Christ's blood, the point of it was it changes you from the inside out. Law is always, well, I better not touch this thing over there, lest I be unclean. I better not pick this thing up over here, lest I be unclean. And it is not, it comes from a mindset that does not actually understand what it is to walk in the Spirit of God and the liberty that actually is in Christ, which is kind of what Paul goes into in Romans 14, where some people, they saw it as it was not right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They're like, well, it's paganism. Right? I mean, it's a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice to an idol. If I, if I touch this thing, especially if I eat it, I am partaking of something sacrificed to an idol, and I become a partaker of paganism and disobey God. And yeah, that's according to the Jewish understanding of the law of Moses, yeah. And people can quote from Deuteronomy all they want to. Um, we're not under the law, for one thing. And if you're under the law, then you're not a Christian. Um, and so there was this idea, that's a letter of the law mentality, as opposed to what Paul says. He's like, hey, What's an idol? It's nothing. It's a statue. And meat, which God made, right? God made the animal from which the meat came from. Hey, eat it. It's it's nothing. But he goes on to say, hey, don't violate your conscience, right? He's like, not everybody realizes that. They think that it's paganism for you to touch that sacrifice. And those who know better, what he says is like, hey, it's not actually a god. It's a statue. And again, we'll talk about it more particularly, but that's kind of this idea of letter of the law. And I use the illustration here in Bible study with him where it's like, imagine a man walking down the road, and he picks up something, he sees it beside the road, he's like, what is this? You know, he picks it up, turns it over, turns out that it's a pornographic magazine. And he's like, oh, throws it away, or throws, puts it in a trash can nearby or something like that. Is the man defiled? And whenever you say defiled, you have to think sin, Okay. Did the man transgress a commandment of God? Well, it depends on how you look at it. To somebody who has a letter of the law mentality, a law mentality, says, well, he touched it, and therefore he has partaken of sin. He had something to do with it, right? And those of us, I think, I hope those of you who understand the New Testament are like, no, he didn't. He didn't indulge in the purpose for which that thing was given for that sinful reason right? And so it's like, no, he didn't sin, especially when he's like, and he throws it away. He did not sin. 
Now, if he sits there, cracks it open, sits down, and starts indulging in the lust in which it's meant to entice, yeah, that's sin. But you see, that's the difference. Okay? Now, those who had the law, they didn't get the point. It was true inward change. It was not just esteeming an outward set of things. You see? And that's where the idea of letter of the law actually is. Some people think spirit versus letter means that there's difference between the two in the sense of, like, they disagree. I'm sorry, that's not true. And so what Paul is getting at here is like, hey, you Jews, you think just because you have the law of Moses and you esteem the law of Moses, you give this intellectual assent to it. And you're like, yeah, God, go punish them heathens, you know, and things like that, that you somehow think that you're righteous just because you have a physical mark on your body of circumcision? And he's like, no, 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 no. If you do not walk in the ways of the Torah, the law of Moses, you are not in any way right with God either. Remember, he's, he's speaking to according to their ideas, right, to expose the falseness of it, right? And then he's like, hey, but guess what? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, verse 28, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He's like, hey, just because you have a little cut in your body doesn't mean that you're right with God. Just because you agree intellectually with the standards that God says doesn't mean anything either. But notice what he says, verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And so it's like, hey, a Jew is not somebody born to a particular race. It is not just because somebody has a physical mark in their body. It is not by an external intellectual assent to a creed or list of things. It is somebody who is given to God in the Spirit, for God's righteousness, right? And he goes into that in Romans chapter 10. And this would have been horrifying to the Jews, but it's completely consistent with the Old Testament, which the point of the law was to lead you to see your need for God. This is whenever Christ was asked by the one lawyer who said, um, what is the greatest commandment? And Christ said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. And the man got it. And he's like, oh, that's absolutely right. For to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, you know, is greater than all, you know, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And what does Christ tell him? He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. The man understood the point of the law, which was to be wholly given to the righteousness of God, not your righteousness. Not by a sense of entitlement, well, because I did these things, I'm right with God, but because, no, Lord, I need you because you're the righteous one. That was what was wrought by the Spirit, not by the letter. And that's the kind of idea that Paul is trying to expose to the Jews who thought they were righteous, but they weren't. And they were looking down their noses at the Gentiles because they didn't have a physical mark in their body, and they didn't have the letter of the law. And he's exposing this kind of, it's just self-righteousness, and saying, no, you're condemned too. And that's kind of what he pivots to for Romans chapter 3, saying, hey, all men are condemned, whether you're a Gentile heathen, whether you're a moral Gentile, or you are a Jew, you're all condemned. And this kind of leads into Romans chapter 3, where it ends with, you know, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God, right? For the way, you know, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, 
his point after tail end of Romans 1, going through Romans 2, and leading in with Romans 3, is that it doesn't matter where you come from, whether you're a heathen, whether you're a moral Gentile, whether you're a Jew who was raised in the law, even if you agree with the law, you are still lost. So that's where we'll end today. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.